This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. Science is real from the Big Bang to DNA. Science is real from evolution to the Milky Way. Hello and welcome back to Exvangelical, the show exploring the world inside and outside the evangelical subculture. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. My guest this week is Mike Maharg, a.k.a. Science Mike, who is the author of the book Finding God in the Waves, How I Lost My Faith and Found It Again Through Science. He's also a podcaster, appearing on the well-known podcast The Liturgists, and Ask Science Mike. In this conversation, we talk about his book, which touches on evangelicalism, atheism, neuroscience, mystical encounters, and so much more. It's a great conversation. And if you enjoy it and want to pick up the book, please follow the Amazon link right here in the show notes. Exvangelical will receive a portion of the sale through Amazon's affiliate program, and that's a great way to support the show. You can also support the show through Patreon at patreon.com slash exvangelicalpod, and by rating the show on iTunes. You can follow me on Twitter at brchastain, and you can follow the show across social media at exvangelicalpod. The show is on Twitter and Instagram at exvangelicalpod, and you can like and follow the show on Facebook at facebook.com slash exvangelicalpod. All right, let's get into it. Hello and welcome back to Exvangelical. I have with me this week Science Mike. He is a author, a podcaster, a speaker. Uh, you can find him on his podcast, Ask Science Mike, as well as The Liturgist. He also does lots of speaking throughout the nation, and he is also the author of the recent book, Finding God in the Waves, How I Lost My Faith and Found It Again Through Science. Welcome to the show, Mike. That's good to be here. Thanks for the invitation. I appreciate it. Um, let's start with... Uh, with um, where you grew up, and uh, and just a little bit about about yourself and where you're from. Um, what the show is really about is um, is you mentioned in your book that about forty two percent of Americans go through some sort of faith transition in their life, and that's what this show is really about: is learning about that and letting people kind of tell their narratives so that they can um, so that they can find some commonality, especially within evangelicalism. Like if you if you grew up or have some sort of experience there then there's this common language that a lot of us have, even if we don't identify that way anymore. So um, I'd love to hear a little bit about you. Um, I believe you grew up Southern Baptist, correct? Yeah, SBC all the way. <laughs> um, I grew up in Tallahassee, Florida, which is uh, definitely Bible Belt territory. And uh, especially when I was a kid, not just Christianity, but evangelical Christianity were kind of the cultural norm. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't a weird thing to be a Sunday morning family or to go to church multiple times per week. That was just par for the course, which Mm -hmm. I think some of my, uh, listeners and friends in larger cities and major metros and on the West coast, I can't believe that even in the eighties, the South was still like that, but it was. And, um, so I was a good Baptist. Like I liked the church. I liked the theology. I liked the certainty about the world I got from reading the Bible a particular way. 
So, you know, contrary to many people's experiences, I actually loved being Baptist. And you've said before that also um, being Southern Baptist, being evangelical, taught you a lot about being a good husband, a good father, a good employee. And then I had, even though you might from the outside see that there are some shortcomings to it, it still also had a lot of benefits. Um, How did that sort of, how did those sorts of benefits play out for you? I mean, you, you mentioned that you liked it and I didn't, I personally, I did too. I mean, there was a lot that it helped make sense of the world and that's, that's very powerful. Um, so how did that play out for you? You don't spend a lot of time wondering what life is about. If you're <laughs> a conservative evangelical, you know exactly what life is about to know and follow God. So with that out of the way, you can get to the business of, living your life instead of figuring out what you're going to do with your life. I understood that, you know, fidelity to my wife was essential, that honoring her and caring for her was essential. I knew that being a devoted father was important. I knew that working hard and being a diligent worker was an essential expression of my faith to do all things as an act of worship. So you really, if you follow the plan and it's working, you start to feel like you've mastered life Um, because I got married relatively young to a woman I loved. I had children. They were good kids. I had a good job. And uh, what reason would I have to think that was anything other than God's blessing? Yeah. And then you experienced, um, you've shared this, you share this in your book. um, There's just kind of this atom bomb that happens in your life with, with your parents. And then that sort that, catapults you into this seeking for answers and, you know, feeling like you don't have life figured out anymore. And you started with this, uh, with this deep interrogation of the Bible. Explain how that sort of felt for you at that time. Yeah, my interrogation of the Bible was not uh, accusatory. I actually was turning to the Bible because I knew it had answers to life's problems, God's answers to life's problems, really. Mm-hmm. Um, so I turned to the Bible not to question it, uh, as in question its authority, but to learn from it. Uh, But once I did that, reading the Bible so intensely made me see a lot of its content in a new light. And um, some audiences are are surprised when I say this, but more than anything else, it was Bible study that led me to atheism. And um, they came from a lot of places. There's the obvious stuff about the conflict between like modern cosmology or Darwinian evolution and the biblical depiction of creation, but it goes it goes deeper than that. Uh, a careful reading of the Bible's text can reveal apparent contradictions that are difficult to resolve, and that the answers apologists will give in response to those contradictions aren't always compelling. And deeper than that, uh, God's morality uh, in the Bible is often curious uh, compared to a modern understanding of ethics. Um, I I can remember in particular reading about after the Exodus, as the nation of Israel entered into the land of Canaan, which was their promised land, the brutality and even genocide that was depicted in the text as part of fulfilling God's will was shocking to me and made me question everything I understood about God. And was that the first time um, within your life that you approached those portions of the text, and especially in the Old Testament? I'd read the whole Bible before. Okay. 
Yeah. Um, but I'd always read it in conjunction with study guides or Bible studies. This was kind of my first concerted effort to make it all the way through the text on my own. I'd, I'd messed around. I'd read books before. Um, but I'd always had a particular lens I brought with me. I, I was searching for affirmation for my existing views. And I think this was maybe the most honest posture I'd ever taken toward the Bible. And that revealed it in a new light. So did it feel while you were doing this, um, as you, you mentioned, it was not out of, you weren't, you weren't looking to poke holes that you just began to sort of see them. <laughs> um, did it feel to you like dominoes falling or, or pillars becoming shaky? Um, whenever you start with the text, which um, within evangelicalism, I, it, it, becomes the bedrock it's the bible is supposed to serve as this inerrant bedrock of our faith but once that becomes suspect for whatever reason whether it's um whether it's a textual thing i i went to a christian college and studied greek and for my story um it was the study of greek that really (laughs) started to started to make me feel less certain about the bible um when you started there with the Bible and then you started to see those things, what, where did that lead you next? There's a, a YouTube series that I like a lot by a guy who calls himself Evidence. Uh, I think it's called Why I'm No Longer a Christian. And he, in great detail, goes through his process of losing God. And he uses a, a construct or a metaphor um, for a belief in God, which he calls a hyperbelief, and that basically belief in God is a, be- a set of beliefs that are interrelated and that all uh, support each other. So personal experiences with God, others' experiences with God, the authority of the scriptures, um, et cetera, et cetera. There's all these, these interconnected beliefs. And when people have doubt, they're usually seeing one or two of their ideas about God change or weaken. But to truly lose belief, you have to lose enough confidence in multiple beliefs simultaneously mm. to question the very existence of God. Uh, so I, I lost confidence in a lot of areas, uh, and they would ebb and flow, but they, the trend definitely moved towards ebbing. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, probably the, the earlier things that kind of failed for me were like intercessory prayer, uh, an infallible scripture. And to their own devices, simply having those changes just lead to a more liberal theology. They don't lead to a collapse of faith. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think part of the problem for me as an evangelical is that the Bible really was the center of my faith, not Christ. Um, and when the Bible failed, or the way I read the Bible failed, I had no other way to approach belief. And I think that was inevitably, um, that was going to cause a chain reaction that led to my total loss of faith. In your book, you mentioned that it, and throughout this, you, you eventually you were just praying out loud, and you said, I don't believe in you. Um, and then... At that point, you had a, an epiphany about your state of your faith and that you, it was no longer there. And one of the things that you mention uh, and talk about in your book is also that 
um, that there's a there's a neurological aspect to this, and that the sense of God disappeared when you felt when you finally verbalized that, um, but then you continued to be um, believe in atheism for two years while not telling anyone. I'd love to to hear you talk about the sort of the neural network sort of aspect of this, and that you um, that you no longer had confidence in your belief. Um, and then when that, when that confidence went away, the feeling also went away. Cause I, I think that's very fascinating that, that there's an emotional aspect to this cognitive, um, cognitive existence as well. It would be more accurate to say that there's a cognitive aspect to this emotional belief. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. There you go. <laughs> uh, neurologically speaking, God is not a cognitive experience. God is not a logical, rhetorical, linguistic belief. People may justify or rationalize their belief mm, okay. linguistically, but the brain scan belays a God in human minds that is much more akin to a feeling or an experience than an idea. And when we constantly rationally analyze God, we bias our brain activity towards the rational centers of the brain and away from the emotional centers of the brain, which dissolves the feeling of lived experience of God and can cause us to feel like we don't have faith anymore. And that's what happened to me uh, because I'd been a believer since you know I was very, very young, seven or eight years old. I'd cultivated a rich network that encompassed multiple regions of my brain to process the world in a way that included God. And as I so slowly trained this network to no longer be responsive to my emotional life, um, it caused me to see the world differently. And at first, this new way of seeing seemed very flat um, because I was setting aside a major component of how I saw the world and how I found an emotional resonance with it, which is an experience I dubbed transcendence withdrawal. To go from feeling like God listens to everything you say that is completely present, that God indeed has a plan for your life, to seeing the world as coldly indifferent, uh, without a creator, without consciousness, and to be a cosmic accident, uh, causes a terrible kind of vertigo. Now, ultimately, I learned how to view the world with wonder and how to have hope as a humanist. But that transition was traumatic and fraught with difficulty for me. And that transcendence withdrawal phrase is just really, it's a nail on the head um, because of that sort of experiential aspect of faith. Um, you know, either mountaintop experiences that you might have on a short term mission trip or high and lifted up sort of worship sessions. Um, and just that sense of awe that can happen um, within a within a believer's life, within um, that sort of emotional high is, I mean, it feels very good, and for that to be taken away is is devastating. Um, and I, I'm certain that, that many listeners can can identify with that as they have sort of found a different way to view the world. But during those two years, uh, where did you? As an atheist, did you did you begin to find that feeling in anything else, or was it something that just was remained flat even during those two years? 
Oh, it only took a few months before I started to feel hope again. And that was, I had, I had, uh, I did a lot of my processing on forums online where atheists gather and talk. And I found really supportive community there. And I remember saying, okay, you win. There is no God. Uh, now what? I feel so hopeless. I feel so alone. I feel so nihilistic. And, you know, someone posted basically says the sunrise any less beautiful because it's a natural event. And if you cared for the poor because Jesus told you to, is it any less beautiful to care for the poor of your own choice? Is that maybe even more beautiful? So just because there's no objective purpose to life, does it not mean you cannot make your own meaning for life, that you can have a destiny of your choosing, that you still have agency and power to shape the world? And that idea that I could find and foster a purpose for my life was so foreign to me, but was comforting. And I started to, after that time, I decided I wanted to, to serve others and, and know as much as I could about the world we live in. I got really into astronomy. I bought a telescope. I started staying up late at night very frequently to scan the stars. And I found in those moments, looking at some celestial object, you know, hundreds or thousands of light years from the Earth, um, a sense of profound connection and wonder that was very similar to the wonder I once felt singing praise choruses or hymns. Um, and that's, that's neurological in origin. We, we understand that shifting our focus away from ourselves to larger scopes tend to cause a feeling of elation or transcendence in people, which is one of the reasons religion is so powerful. And I learned to do much of that uh, without any belief in God whatsoever, which is an important point. A lot of skeptics hear my story and they say, well, you know, Mike, you just faced a lot of social pressure uh, and you, you, that's why you came back and you felt, you felt uh, depressed. But, but the truth is, it was only about four to six months that I felt that way. And most of my time without belief was actually some of the happiest, most fulfilled time of my life. I was very comfortable as a humanist. Um, and the main thing I was trying to figure out was how to publicly become one without causing, you know, complete and total fallout uh, in my life and with my family. Um, by the time I ended up kind of encountering God again, I had no longing for God whatsoever. And that's um, both aspects of what you just mentioned is what makes your story so interesting is that in, in what I think so many people can identify with is that there was this social component that for a lot of people that are deeply involved in a church, the church becomes their primary and sometimes sole um, social support system directly within their lives. And that's, mm. that's what you, that's what was happening in your life. Um, so, and then, um, I want to get to the, the, the next part of what you mentioned is, as far as you, you weren't actively seeking God anymore. For you, it was a settled issue. But you still decided to, to not tell anyone. Uh, you, you call yourself uh, the, the world's most boring secret agent. <laughs> and, <that's>, um, <laughs> and that you, uh, 
and that you were an a uh, closeted atheist in a Southern Baptist church, and you were a deacon, and you hadn't told your your family or your wife, um, but that you continued to live this life because of that social support system. And it was not just the um, social support system, right? It was also an empathy because I didn't want my faith transition to cause undue suffering or angst in my friends and family. I was actually more worried about that than, you know, any social loss that, you know, I might encounter. And that's, that's very compassionate. And uh, that's absolutely a very compassionate um, stance. Um, but eventually you are, <laughs> your, your wife does send something off about you and she asks you and then, Eventually, you share this moment in your in your book uh, where you're you're relaxing in the evening, and she starts asking you questions, and you're not getting out of it. <laughs> it's one of those sorts of marital moments where there's there's no getting around it. You have to go through it, <laughs> right? And uh, right. and then you tell her, um, and then that starts leading you towards an event. Um, it it begins with with her and with uh, and with your mother, and then leads. And that sort of you you present that as sort of a preface to what happens with, uh, later in California, um, but during that time, that was that just the the culmination of your worst fears <laughs> that uh, of of sharing this aspect of your life with with your wife and with with other members of your family. I is terrifying, and their initial reactions. Um confirmed my worst suspicions which i think it's important for people who are exploring new ideas and talking about them for the first time you've got to understand people's first reaction may not be their final reaction (laughs) (laughs) Uh, the shock of something new from someone who feels very close can cause unexpected behavior that's because every person we build models of other people's consciousness that operate in our own brains. And when we feel close to someone, we typically feel like we know them well enough that we're good at predicting their behaviors. And we're stressed when we learn our model is incorrect. And that's an evolutionary pressure that we face. So give people some grace uh, in their initial reactions if you say something very new about yourself and give them time for their full minds to engage the issue. It's their limbic system that's going to react first, which is fear and anger, um, you know, the, the more primitive parts of our brain. And it will take time for the more thoughtful parts of a human brain to engage a topic or issue. Hmm. I, I think that's, that's, a, that's a great insight. Uh, I think a, a lot of people are afraid to share their their doubts or their beliefs their true beliefs with the people close to them even if it's their partner or their spouse um for that reason just out of just out of fear um and of not being accepted it's it's a legitimate concern on both sides it's it's a very vulnerable thing that that uh that that you shared with her and then um it, it led to a discussion with um, with your mother. You you uh, you said, I believe it was in your episode of the liturgist. You talk about it took a couple days, but then she she called in the big guns, which was your which was your mother, <laughs> <laughs> which is true. 
Um, and then, then they kind of let you, let you know that, that they're not necessarily based on your telling of it, that they're, they're going to, um, continue to sort of press gently <laughs> and, and have this dialogue with you. Um, but you feel very firm in your own belief. And then you go on, um, you, you go on a trip to a conference with, that's hosted by Rob Bell and there you have, um, a mystical encounter. Um, could you share that experience, experience and, and what that all entailed? Cause it, again, you, you mentioned that you, at this point you weren't even seeking anymore. You felt confident in your conclusions and then you go to California and have this experience. Yeah. Now I just want to warn people. Um, I've told this story so many times that it's become very difficult for me to tell it with dramatic tension in a podcast format. <laughs> um, so I, you know, I, I do a pretty good job on stage because I, I, I resonate with people's experiences hearing it for the first time. But when I'm sitting here, uh, let's, let's break the fourth wall for a second. I'm sitting in my office by myself talking into a microphone. Um, it's much harder to, to lean back into the emotions of that day. Uh, so I'll, I'll give you a, a teaser. And if you'd like to hear a, a better, more dramatic portrayal, check out, you know, either the liturgist podcast, episode six and seven, or the terrific book, finding God in the waves, which, I wrote. <laughs> yes. so, um, but basically what, well, what happened, uh, was I went to this conference that was about creativity and they ended up talking about the enlightenment and skepticism in a way that offended me. And I stood up and shared my objections with the group and the group responded very graciously to that, which I didn't anticipate. And we continued the conference and it was great until the very end when they decided to share the Eucharist and I decided I wouldn't take the Eucharist, but would instead, um, shake Rob Bell's hand and say, thanks for a couple great days. And when I went to do that, Rob did exactly what you would expect to do during the Eucharist. He held out a piece of bread and said, this is the body of Christ broken for you. And I felt a lot of tension. I didn't want to take the bread because I didn't believe that Jesus was ever a real person. And I certainly didn't want a room full of pastors to believe I was having some kind of conversion experience. So I was going to turn around and leave. And I heard a voice, like an audible voice, not a voice in my mind, um, but a voice that seemed to be standing kind of behind me and to my left that said, I was there when you were eight and I'm here now. And, uh, that was incredibly powerful for me because as a bullied kid and I used to pray during recess instead of playing with the other kids because Jesus wouldn't beat me up or make fun of me. And I, it's not like I want to be clear. It's not like I suddenly believed in Jesus or the resurrection. I just remembered what believing in Jesus had done for me. And so in remembrance of that idea, I took the Eucharist and ran out of the room, really emotionally upset. And uh, hours later, probably 2.30 in the morning, I was standing on the beach and I started praying. 
really accusing God of God's own implausibility, of God's immorality. <laughs> Not like a, a prayer of reconciliation, but uh, more of a what the hell is your problem, <laughs> Almighty, if you exist. If that's even your name, right? Like really skeptical, really cynical. And as I, I sort of let it all out, I admitted that I missed feeling God's presence as I felt in that moment. And um, a couple things happened, and I had this insane experience where I saw a bright light in front of me, but it wasn't like it was floating there. It's like it was shining through reality itself and that light got brighter and then enveloped me and when it did i felt warmth and then i felt love like god's love for me and i felt god's love for all of humanity and from my perspective it seemed like time stopped and i was just in this light and and then it stopped and so here i was standing on the beach and I had an encounter with a God that I did not believe in. Hmm. Um, wow. And I didn't have a box to put that in. I, I honestly thought like maybe I had a brain tumor or a psychotic episode. <laughs> so I, I actually saw um, a neurologist and a psychiatrist when I got back home. But I also thought, well, maybe that was something. And so as I, as I sort of checked my skeptical experience, I also started searching for the source of that light. And at first I tried the Bible, and I tried theologians, and that didn't help. So instead, one thing I understood in theology was the most basic claim theologies and religions have about God is that God is the creator, and that God sustains creation. So I went in search of those things in cosmology and quantum physics. What I found there, of course, wasn't personal, didn't know my name, didn't answer prayer. And so to find a God that we can experience, I looked into the human brain and, and neuroscience. Um, you share a lot about that in your book, and I feel I didn't even know existed called neurotheology, which is about the brain's sort of experience, how the brain experiences thoughts about God. I don't know if that's the right language. Um, feel, please correct me if that's not the, the right way to summarize that. Um, I think my favorite line in your book is, um, People pursuing God aren't wasting their time. Um, that one really jumped out at me. Um, and throughout the the second half of your book, much of what you're doing is is cataloging this experience and finding things that empirical things we can look at um, within brain scans and and through cosmology and other aspects of science that can help people that either have doubts begin to explore these questions with a sense of grounding in both rational belief and rational worldview as well as 
sort of accepting this this portion of their desire to pursue God. Another way that you categorize this is that there's two experiences of God in the mind as well, both the angry God and the loving God. Um, how do you seek through this sort of mystical path to um, to embrace that loving God? And how do you address the angry God portion of both our mental sort of our mental faculties as well as that strain within religious traditions. It's a matter of focus and attention. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with and your listeners are familiar with the parable of the two wolves, often attributed to um, Native American culture, where a grandfather is talking to his grandson and he says, and each of us lives two wolves. One is fast and vicious and the other is kind and loyal and the the grandson says well which wolf wins which one is more powerful and the grandfather says the one that you feed and that's that's exactly how our our brain network of god is developed it's a matter of which image of god we feed do we focus on a god who is angry and wrathful and vengeful, or do we focus on God who's compassionate and loving? And that choice you make every moment influences the individual model and understanding you have of God and how your understanding of God would show up in a brain scanner. And it's it's a matter of choice. So when I read passages in the scripture, um, you know, where God is, is really obviously angry, I view that anger and those actions as they're portrayed in the text as an expression of love, right? Because love can provoke anger uh, even helpfully. If if uh, a stranger were to strike one of my children, I hope I would get angry. Um, or, or else what kind of love is it? Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, it's the interpretive lens that you use that that influences the formation of those beliefs. And one way that one way that you you see you saw it as you were beginning to rebuild um, this new understanding of God and this new understanding of your religious experience is through these axioms. Um, these axioms that God is at at least this. Um, if God exists, He is at least this. Um, those sorts of um, those sorts of statements. Um, is that something that you share those in your book? And I, I want to point people to, to those statements, um, in the book there. Um, is there, uh, is that something you, you fall back on as not fall back on? Is that something you, um, utilize just throughout your, throughout your understanding of cosmology and this, and, and this mystical part? Um, and to me, Personally, it's always like I always desire this sort of synthesis again between the sort of rational and scientific empirical sort of view on the world as well as this larger um, aspect of the world or um, the spiritual aspect of the world. And bringing in my own very individual neurology to this, I I have a, a minor version of epilepsy. So there's some electrical activity that I just don't know if it's just compelling me towards this. Even against, even if it feels like it's against my will, 
you use the, you mentioned non-overlapping magisteria uh, as well. Do you feel like this is sort of a non-overlapping sort of thing? How do you um, approach? Do you approach these things together, or do you still separate them and use and utilize both versions of your perception of the world, both through this mystical understanding as well as science? How, how do you how do you do that? I definitely don't separate them. Um, when I study science, I study God. Um, but but my faith answers different questions than science answers. Independent of of God, mm-hmm. um, the 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 axioms are not a theology. The axioms are a rational justification that says you're not wasting your time when you look for God. You're not wasting your time when you practice the Christian faith. That's all they are. Mm-hmm. They're a scaffold for the skeptical who are interest, interested in faith but just can't get there. And so I don't, I don't need that scaffold anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I've I've leapt into mystery. I understand that there there are brain states that aren't really achievable through rational inquiry, and my faith practice develops those. But they're not designed to answer questions about physical reality. They're designed to put me in the presence of what we call God, mm. which is very. I know that that sounds like gobbledygook because I'm talking about something. It's like trying to explain falling in love to someone. You can't do it. If you've never fallen in love, you don't know what it's like to fall in love. Yes, that's it. That's that's very fair. That's very good um, because it, it it does lead to the the testimony of individual experience in that way. Um, you just have to go through it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when you when you return home, um, switching back to uh, to this more this this other side of your personal story, which is your experience at your your church and you you come back and you're revitalized and pursuing God uh, but you're pursuing God with a new framework and a new understanding um, things don't go necessarily smoothly at your at your church that you were attending at the southern Baptist uh, Southern Baptist local church that you were at um, and it was around the sort of more scientific uh, claims that that were being made in in regards to evolution being an accepted theory and, and everything else that that is also another experience um, that a lot of people may have is and again is one of the things that is fraught with um, with becoming public about your dissent dissenting opinion within evangelicalism um, what did that what did that lead to for you Having becoming more public about your understanding of science and your uh, your understanding of other religions or of being uh, LGBT affirming and everything like that. Uh, divorce, yeah, that, it ended my my evangelical experience. Um, it was very clear I was I didn't belong there and I wouldn't be tolerated there. Um, there's not in most evangelical traditions an ability to hold disagreement in grace 
So I, I became ex-evangelical very, very quickly. And in light of that, um, what do you see as the role of local churches in really the lives of people that don't fit in and disagree and have dissenting opinions? What do you see as the role of a local church in today's world? Just very, pra- just very practically, what, what can they do or, or what purpose should they serve? A church is not a barracks building warriors for culture or spiritual warfare. A church is not an academy educating people about ideas. A church is a hospital where the sick and wounded are cared for. And the American expression of Christianity focuses very much on a barracks and an academy, but not on a hospital. Hmm. Um, And until we shift into being a place that cares for the afflicted and the weak and the oppressed, we will continue to see the modern expression of the gospel grow weaker and weaker with every passing generation. In relation to that, what role do you see other other sorts of organizations and other sorts of events such as the liturgist gatherings that you're that you are um arranging and organizing throughout the country and elsewhere? What role do those sorts of events play for people that are um that are on this path and that are venturing outside of evangelicalism or potentially outside of Christianity or religion altogether. Um, what, what is your goal with those events? Our only goal is to make people feel less alone and to feel welcome. That's the whole trick. And that, that sense of solitude um, is something that I think your your work through the podcasts and and through every and through those gatherings is something that people that is great way to push back against that sort of feeling of loneliness because even though we're all connected in a way we we never really were before through all of our different networking capacities um there's still a a sense of not people not knowing who we necessarily really are um and a providing an avenue for people to do that and not feel judged is uh is very powerful and i and i i think one of the things that's unfortunate is that churches are no longer considered neutral ground um so people have to go outside of them in order to feel that sort of acceptance yeah which is <laughs> is very sad um and and frankly a a judgment of a judgment on how the church is expressing this good news and one other one another question i have for you that is a very open ended question um and as a as a father this is something that and as someone that has had another also a very painful exit from a church in the last couple of years um is a very open question for me as well. And that is, in what way do you hope to raise your children in the faith in a way that, that you feel is affirming to the faith and will give them a grounding for 
understanding the value of of following Christianity and the grounding to be able to interact with people that may not necessarily feel that way. I don't try to replicate my faith into my children at all. I, I don't even actually try to convince my children to be Christians <laughs> <laughs> at all. Um, I try to equip my children to find their own way with God. That includes explaining what I understand about God and why, but what other people understand about God and why. So they're never blindsided um, by some single narrative that I just try to reproduce into them. And uh, that's a that's a more difficult journey um, to not offer my my kids a, a false sense of certainty and security, but ultimately I I hope it creates a more robust and mature faith for them. Absolutely, I I think um the the thing that is such an interesting challenge coming and exiting, and also feeling like you're exiting from evangelicalism. Um, a previous guest I just. Uh, interviewed uh, Dr. Chris Stroop and really nailed it with this saying he said. Um, he said that once you leave evangelicalism, you feel weird everywhere. <laughs> you, you feel weird in an evangelical setting, and you also feel weird um, when you try to describe your sort of upbringing or your sort of experience to someone that may not have ever had that, and that's just not part of their reality. And to me, um, that's the socialization aspect of it. I feel like evangelicalism has a whole it's a cultural milieu that's so all-encompassing that um it feels like you're afloat or alone um when you when you leave that and as a as a parent i don't want to replicate that i also don't want to replicate that for them but i don't necessarily know because of the um it it is definitely a an uncharted territory which is very liberating but also very <laughs> surprising and and um and nerve-wracking as well um but overall do you feel positive about the way things are moving within the church and the people that are trying to follow Christ in 2016 here in in the US in our particular location gosh that's a really tough question. <laughs> I don't worry about the church ultimately. Um, I think the church has been in empire mode for too long. And so maybe uh, a movement toward the grave is necessary in order for the church to experience its resurrection. The church should be in the resurrection business. And right now it's not. So... The decline of institutional Christianity does not concern me, nor do I think it's the end of faith, not even the end of the Christian faith. Um, frankly, cognitively, humans are at their most open to change only in states of absolute crisis. <laughs> <laughs> so things probably have to get worse for the church before it gets better. Things probably have to get worse for America's political parties before they get better, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I do I do see some hopeful signs, though. Millennials who identify as Christian aren't as hung up on power structures or systems or culture wars. Their faith is 
much more a lived expression of beauty. And that does make me hopeful. Yay, that's a, one of the first, you know, all the headlines about millennials killing things. <laughs> I'm a huge fan of millennials. Just <laughs> huge. And frankly, post-millennials look even better than millennials. That that I, I believe. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the world, the boomers, they're my parents. I love them. They were kind of American boomers. We're kind of a pox on the planet. <laughs> uh, Gen X responded to that with cynicism and shutting down and just hyper individuality. And I think the millennials and the post millennials are, um, are responding in more healthy ways. <laughs> and that's, that's, that's my hope too. Um, well, I, I really, um, I really appreciate you taking the time this morning to talk to me. I, um, I, I know that the, your book is was very very powerful, and um, I know that there are a lot of people out there that could just benefit so much from this. People that from all walks of life, and anyone that has a has a question about what it's like to go through such a very personal and very um, very thorough and very moving experience of, of transitioning from one, one idea of faith to another. Um, I, I really appreciate you talking with me and for writing the book and, and sharing your story. Um, where, where else can people find you online and where can, if you're speaking in an area, is there anything you'd like to, to mention? Well, you can learn all about the book if you want to hear more. I've even created a series of videos that explore topics from the book at FindingGodInTheWaves.com. You can see if my tour will come anywhere near you by going to FindingGodInTheWaves.com slash tour. If you'd like to follow my podcast or other work that I do, the best place to connect with me is at AskScienceMike.com. Thank you very much, Science Mike, for, for talking with me today. I appreciate Thank it. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed it. <laughs>